but today we're going to be um, uh, looking at our, doing our last two weeks in our series, uh, in which the overarching series entitled, How Then Shall We Live?, where we take topics of theology uh, and then see how they change the way that we live. So this week uh, we'll do to glorify God, next week to do, we'll do to enjoy God, uh, and those will be the last two in this series and the last two uh, weeks before my sabbatical starts. Uh, so um, thank you for that. So why don't we stand? Uh, Psalm 96 is going to lead us in what it is for us to glorify God and see how uh, this theological topic changes how we live and what we do. Psalm 96, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would uh, teach us from your word. God, that you would uh, be the one who is on display this morning, that you would give us a picture of your glory. And so, Father, then that would change how we see all of life, and then we could glorify you. Challenge us, God, in our thinking, uh, in all the ways that we maybe live for ourselves rather than you. And God, when we see our rebellion and see our brokenness and see our sin, God, thank you for the grace of this table. The grace that we are welcomed to the table of the holy and righteous living God, not because of anything we have done, but because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. So Father, I pray that we would look honestly and even devastatingly honestly at life. So God, that we might be ones that glorify you because of your great salvation for us. God, be with us. Speak to us this morning. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So back in 1950, a guy named James Hampton rented a garage in uh, Washington, D.C. During the day, he was a janitor. Uh, he worked at a, as a janitor in government buildings around Washington, D.C., and when he wasn't at work, 
he was constructing in this garage that he rented a complex work of art inside uh, that garage. He built it with things that he found around or scavenged and kind of collected. Aluminum foil, gold foil uh, from department stores, uh, from the displays there, uh, old furniture, pieces of cardboard, light bulbs, jelly jars, uh, shards of a mirror, a desk blotter, uh, some of these things like, what is this? Uh, glass bottles, insulation boards, and sheets of transparent plastic. Basically, he gathered all of these things and held all of this stuff together with tacks and glue and pins and tape. And this is what he constructed. That middle thing, seven feet tall, is a throne depicting the throne room of God in heaven. Uh, It's a seven-foot-tall throne surrounded uh, by uh, crowns and lecterns and tablets and altars and pulpits. Uh, But that middle centerpiece is made out of a a maroon-cushioned armchair. The words on the top, fear not. To make things even a little bit more odd, uh, during his lifetime, he was a quiet, virtually unknown man, and this extraordinary collection was not known to anybody for the 14 years that he built it. It stayed hidden in his garage until he died in 1964, and then this makeshift piece of artwork is now displayed in the Smithsonian's National Museum. Museum of American Art in Washington, D.C., inside the front door in a little alcove. And on a bulletin board in this garage, he had the, the words from Proverbs 29, 18 written, where there is no vision, the people perish. And in a sense, for 14 years, he built a reminder of the glory of God. I, I don't know if he meant to share it when he was finished. I don't know if he would ever finish it. Uh, Maybe he built it for himself, but regardless, he spent 14 years trying to capture the magnitude and the glory of God in heaven by artwork in his garage to the glory of God. Writer Oz Guinness, he wrote this in his book, The Call. He said, the trouble is, is as modern people, uh, we have too much to live with and too little to live for. His point is that, that we kind of just kind of go and we string event from event to, uh, you know, kind of one thing after another. We've got all this abundance, uh, but what are we living for? What's our purpose? Why do we exist? Why are we going to wake up tomorrow? And are you going to wake up in despair? Or are you going to wake up with a sense of purpose, purpose that transcends the vacation you might be going on? the workplace that you're going to, the friends that you're going to see, or maybe even your family. Because all of those things we understand are transient. All those things are temporary. What are you living for? And I think so many people in our country are in despair over that question. What in the world am I even living for? Well, Psalm 96 starts to frame this idea of the glory of God. Now, in Uh, In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, it it is in the first question, the question is asked, what is the chief end of man? Now that's old school language. What is the chief purpose 
of man is the question. And the answer is that man's chief end, man's chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That our purpose, why do we wake up in the morning, is to glorify God and enjoy him. And so we're going to take those in these next two weeks. But without that answer, really every other answer falls short. Why do you live? For what purpose? To be productive. But what happens if your productivity is cut short by some debilitating illness or sickness? You have no purpose for living. Well, I'm here to love people. Well, what, what happens if your friends maybe move away or, you know, like relationships sometimes fail and fall apart? If it's just to do something, then what maybe you lack purpose. Our purpose has to be something that is transcendent, something that is glorious, something that is bigger than what you will see tomorrow. It's got to be uh, depicted by the glory of God. And so when the, the confession says, or uh, the shorter catechism says, that, uh, that our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, Psalm 96 leads us to that first and most obvious place that our, our worship glorifies God. And so the idea of glory in the Old Testament is the word for something to be weighty or heavy. It's it, the glory of God is the weightiness of God, the, 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 uh, to give him the honor he deserves. And as Pete mentioned earlier, what is worship? Worship is to give that back to God, to, as Pete said, to give him the attention that he deserves. That when we walk in here, you know, it's so easy, uh, and I might be the first in line, that I'm focused on everything else other than the glory of God right? You know, how are things going? You know, are my kids kind of, you know, doing their thing? Well, first off, where are my kids? And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, we're thinking about all the different things. What's going on today? What, you know, what's for lunch? What's going to, oh man, I got that project tomorrow. We're thinking about a lot of things, but worship, we come into worship and we give God the attention and the honor that he deserves, that his glory and when, uh, that deserves. And when we do that, it glorifies, that act of worship glorifies God. Not just because it comes out of our mouth, but it rings out to people around us. And so as we read in verse 1, it's sing to the Lord. And then he repeats it, sing to the Lord. Verse 2, a, a third time, sing to the Lord. You wonder, why do we sing so much in church? Right here. Uh, bless his name. And that idea of bless is praise, to adore, to kneel. And so it's interesting to think through what does kneeling represent is kind of like, like a, uh, you know, to, for us to put, place ourselves under or before someone, but we're doing that verbally. So to verbally place ourselves under God's authority and kneel before him. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Verse 3, declare his glory to the nations, that we take that to the nations. Verse 7 and 8, the word ascribe. It's like kind of every word that the English language or Hebrew in original text has to express us saying something, us singing something, us proclaiming something, us now ascribing something, which is to give something or to deliver. And so ascribe what? 
ascribe to the Lord splendor, ascribe to the Lord glory, kind of deliver before him the strength, the glory due his name, the splendor of his holiness. And it doesn't just stop there with our mouth or what we say. Verse 8, bring an offering, come into his courts. So it's what we say, but it's also the attitude of our heart because offerings are the sense of us bringing something of value and we lay it before the Lord as an act of worship. That's why we talk about being givers and people who uh, we recognize what God has given to us and then we lay a portion before him. And it's not just, you know, oh yeah, this thing that's kind of up on, on the shelf that I don't really care about. It's your wallet. It's your checkbook. It's your bank account. It's things that God has provided to us. It's things that we care about deeply, and we bring them as an offering of worship. And what does worship do? It reminds us week after week that God is God and we are not. It's almost as if God said, If you go seven days without really focusing on that, you'll start to think way too much of yourself, and you'll tend to think way less than you should about me. God's our hope. God's our life. God is big. That's a theological term. God is magnificent. And so when you gather in a room like we did this last week at General Assembly, uh, 2,000 pastors and elders are registered. A lot of them have families. So you're talking for that first night of worship, about 3,000 people or more gathered together in a conference center with cement walls. And we're singing holy, holy, holy with the pipe organ rocking. All to the praise of God. It was a sound because you get a bunch of pastors and elders together, they're singing at the top of their lungs of the glory and the holiness and the righteousness of God. Is glory going to be anything like that? I think we just saw just a glimpse of what glory is going to be. What is it going to be for millions of God's people declaring his glory at the top of our lungs, thundering praise? Not a whisper. God is so great that he deserves our worship. And when we do that, parents, one of the greatest indicators of your children walking with the Lord for the rest of their lives is first off being in worship together, but especially dads, it's singing. If you sing, you declare to your kids, I actually believe this stuff. And they watch you worship and they themselves are convinced or are, are drawn to the glory of God as we sing. And, and it's not just what we do in worship, but it's also remembering our salvation. What does verse 2 say? Is sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Verse 3 says, tell of his marvelous works. And so when we declare salvation, what are we saying? Here's the nature of salvation. The human condition is so bad. We are in such rebellion. We are dead in our sins and trespasses against a holy and righteous God that not one person on the face of this planet, other than Jesus himself, 
Nobody else is able to save themselves. Nobody. You can't save yourself, and the only way that salvation comes to you is a holy and righteous God comes out of heaven and comes to earth to rescue us. And so when we declare salvation, we're saying, I don't have it. I couldn't save myself. I desperately need the grace of God because I deserved hell, but God gave me a welcome into his family. So every time we declare salvation, we declare not just God's great, but God is a redeeming God where he takes dead people with dead hearts towards him and makes us alive. He takes blind people that can't see the reality of God in this world and he gives us sight. He takes people that are deaf and can't hear the things of God and then he gives us the the understanding and the hearing of those things. Tell of his salvation day to day. Sing how great he is, but also sing of his salvation And so it's one thing for us to come into worship and do that. But if we miss, if we just start there, I think we're kind of missing some of the equation. Ray Ortland uh, uh, on Twitter, actually two weeks ago, uh, he was commenting on this verse in Exodus 33, verse 18, where Moses said to God, this is right after the the golden calf um, and right before uh, God uh, kind of uh, declares his name to him. Uh, So Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses says, Please show me your glory. And Ortland said, he wrote this, he said, Perhaps the greatest prayer in all of the Bible, and one that we can pray today, one of the greatest prayers in all the Bible, God, please show me your glory. Because when God shows us his glory, then worship is not like, Oh man, I gotta do this. We see glory, the immediate response is worship. It's a reciprocal thing. Uh, God declares his glory, whoops, uh, God declares his glory over us. Please show me your glory. As we see it, it draws us into worship, and as we worship, God is glorified. You know what's even wild is that even the, uh, the Wall Street Journal agrees with this concept. Didn't see that coming. Uh, Back in 2015, they wrote an article about how experiences of awe actually change us, make us more humble, generous, empathetic, trusting. They said awe is an emotional response to something vast, and it challenges and expands our way of seeing the world. Get this. This is from the Wall Street Journal, not a theologian. Awe minimizes our individual identity and attunes us to things bigger than ourselves. Woo! Amen! Doesn't the world need to hear that? Because that's exactly what the glory of God does. It minimizes the sense of self, but not to diminish you, but to rightly orient you that we live under the glory of God. Of God, And then we see out of Psalm 96 that our submission glorifies God. So it's not just us singing praise, us recognizing God's salvation. It's submission. God, people surrendering our lives to him glorifies God. You know, I remember getting the question growing up, why do you guys always go to church? 
You know, all my friends, and they didn't say it that nicely. Uh, but, but it was like, what in the world? Why are you doing these things? Well, what is it that God's people would submit and surrender to the will of God glorifies God when we put our will on the sidelines to then take God at his word and trust his will for our lives. That speaks to people around and it gives God glory. So Psalm 96 verse 10, say among the nation, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world's established. It it shall never be moved. He will judge the people's with equity. That idea of the Lord reigning. God is king. He established the world. He made it. He upholds it. And how God says the world works, we, in that, we find our very life. We take him at his word. We trust him in his word. Even when our eyes think something else looks better. And that's the rub right there. When we think something else looks better and God says it's another way, at that point, are you willing to surrender and submit. It's easy when we agree, right? My heart and God's heart, we're in line, boom, got it. It's when my heart wants to go this way and God is saying, no, no, this is the way this world works. And as we submit, as we surrender, we trust God's word that gives God glory. So if you have never trusted in Christ, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about that, um, that that is the idea that we call faith. That it's receiving and resting upon him alone for salvation. You say, God, you reign and I don't. God, I have rebelled against you and I need you to, to, to pay for my sins so that I might be welcomed into relationship with you. That's, that's saving faith. That's the initial walk in receiving and resting upon Jesus. But there's another interesting thing. When you trust God throughout your life, throughout the rest of your life, guess what that's called? Faith. (laughs) So faith is what begins our relationship with God, and faith is the day-to-day walk with God daily, submitting our will to His. Verse 9 says, tremble before Him. Not just sing His praise, but tremble before Him. That, That that he is worth all of uh, what we are doing. Verse 4 would say, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. That idea of fear is not like hide in the corner kind of fear. It is just a reverential understanding and awe of who God is. Yet, what's reality? If kind of the idea of submission and faith glorifies God, what's the antithesis of that is what so many people do in our world, chase after other gods and other things, things of the world. That's where verse 5 comes in. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. The contrast is interesting, but the Lord made the heavens. The contrast is you're chasing after something kind of puny and, and, and that doesn't have any magnitude. God made everything, the power and the glory and the magnitude of God. Everything else, everything else pales in comparison. God is glorified when we surrender our lives and then also when we pursue him above all the things of this world. 
But what does a lack of submission, what does that leave us open to is God's judgment. And when we say it, we, we talk on it a lot, like nobody wants to hear that. But yet, how unloving would it be to have God say, he is coming at the end there to judge the peoples with equity. How unloving would it be when God says that and then we as a church would not speak that. That would be the height of, of not loving someone. Verse 13, before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in his faithfulness. There's a reality that God in his patience is actually not coming in as a judge right now. He is actually patiently waiting for people to respond to the call of the gospel. Yet, we know in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every person in this room deserves the judgment and wrath of God. And that includes me, that includes every leader, that includes every elder, that includes everybody, falls short of the glory of God. So even the idea of not just trusting in God, but confessing our sins glorifies God. How does your sin glorify God? Your sin doesn't. But when we confess that we have lived outside of God's will, that we've said, hey, we want to take things into our own hands. We want to live like we want to live. When we confess that, it glorifies God because he is the one who then gets all the, all the praise and all the glory for the mercy and grace that he shows. We admit our rebellion and trust him alone for salvation. God's glorified when we sub, in our submission, but then all of life glorifies God. So what do I mean, all of life? I mean, everything in this world ought to glorify God. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Think about that. Creation, functioning as it should, glorifies God. The sea doesn't have an actual voice, but the sea is roaring in praise of God. A field can't exult, but the field being the field, growing and becoming vibrant and uh, is, it gives praise to God. Trees sing for joy as they grow and just be trees. Like creation, being creation, gives God glory. And so it's not just simply nature and created things. We're a part of creation. We're actually, mankind is the pinnacle of creation. After man was created, God says it is very good. And our very lives are able to glorify him. That's why you were created. You were created to glorify God. Isaiah 43, verse 7. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. It's interesting. If we were created for the glory of God, and then tons of people in our world, and maybe us at times, live outside of glorifying God, then we're living outside of the very design of humanity. 
And it's no wonder that things kind of crash and burn uh, at times. So the question is, are you living for the God's glory or probably most likely the, the alternative is, are you living for your own? Whose glory are you living for? And what's really interesting is oftentimes it's the same exact action, but with a very different motive, right? So we'll kind of take it back to high school. You know, you're, you're kind of in high school and you're kind of working hard on your grades and you're going to do an excellent job and you're, you're striving for a good GPA and, and all of that. But right there, let, let's say you're a straight-A student, you're acing everything, you're AP everything, and whose glory are you doing that for? Are you, you know, excellence is something God calls us to, so you might actually do the same exact behaviors for your own glory to be noticed, to be affirmed, to look really good in people's eyes, or you could do it for God's glory. I use the gifts that God gave me so that I'm a pass-through in my life points all things to the glory of God. It's become a caricature, you know, when someone wins the Super Bowl, you know, I want to give glory to God. But why is that a caricature? Because isn't that the very essence of what it is to be uh, a child of God, that I live so that he might be glorified? And you're saying, all right, what do I do to glorify God? I love this verse. So whether you eat or drink, or, what, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Sunday morning, worship, got it. That's going to give God glory. What else is going to give God glory in addition to surrendering to him, pursuing him, worshiping him? Well, you're going to glorify God, and you are able to glorify God or rob him of glory in your work, in your career, in your family your friendships, your community involvement, your connection with your neighbors that live near you, your hobbies, your entertainment that you watch or consume, your wealth, or even your poverty can glorify God. Your web, your web browsing, your social media activity, both what you look at and, what, and how you post and what you post, your health, your body, your time, your talents, your abilities, your personality, everything can be used to the glory of God. So if you think glorifying God in worship is only a Sunday morning activity, let's multiply that because everything can be done to God's glory. William Carey, uh, that's a, a name that's well known uh, because he was a, uh, a great missionary, one of the missionary pioneers to India. Uh, and, well, he was on his deathbed, and he was visited by a young man named Alexander Duff. And he, he greatly admired William Carey. Uh, and so he came, and he, and he was visiting with him. Uh, and it said after a long visit, uh, Carey asked uh, Alexander to pray with him. And so uh, this young man prays with him. Uh, and when he turns to leave, William Carey, before he dies, he, he says in just a very weak voice, he says, Mr. Duff, you've been speaking a lot about Dr. Carey, Dr. Carey. But please, when I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak only about Dr. Carey's Savior. That is a life 
that is lived to the glory of God, not for his own praise, not so that people would think well of him, but that people might understand his Savior and might glorify him. What are you living for? Tomorrow morning when we do wake up and we start our day, is it for the glory of God? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would uh, take these words, that you would take your, your word and that you would challenge us with it, that, God, you would press into our hearts. Father, would you, if maybe we just saw that we've been living for ourselves and, and that's just been on full display for the last few minutes, God, I pray that we would run to the table because we need your grace. God, restore us. Give us a real picture of what purpose looks like. God, so when we go to work uh, this week, God, that we would work for your glory, that we would do all things so that you might be worshiped and magnified. God, at times that's not easy to figure out what would that be, but God, by your spirit, show us what it is to live for you. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.